Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Focus Interviews by Spectacles. Today, we're joined by a very special guest, former mayor of my hometown, Kansas City, Sly James. Before becoming mayor, Mr. James practiced law and worked as a trial attorney at his own and other practices in Kansas City. When he ran for re-election in Kansas City in 2015, he won with a landslide 87% of the vote. Since leaving office, he co-wrote a book with Winston Fisher, The Opportunity Agenda, a guide for building lasting democratic majorities. Despite his major successes as a local leader in Kansas City, has not sought any further public office. But today he's here to join us to talk about politics, his legacy, and what it means to be a local leader. So one question that I wanted to start off with, just to give us a broad view, is why did you get involved in politics? And ultimately, why didn't you decide to stay involved? Well, actually, I never really thought about getting involved in politics. What I wanted to do was get involved in public service, and specifically public service on the local level with Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not doing what I did in order to set myself up for another office. I think when you start thinking about the next job, you start shaving off things that you should do in the current job in order to ensure success later. Mm. Uh, It inhibits you uh, in making decisions when you start thinking about, well, if I make this call, there's going to be a lot of people angry. And if they're angry, then they won't vote for me when I run for Congress or Senate or whatever the heck else you want to run for. Mm -hmm. Um, And I never wanted to be involved in that. Um, I believe that decisions need to be made based on their own merits, the facts and the data that support it. And I recognize that although people often don't like the way things are, they absolutely hate change. And therefore, they're going to be a cadre of people who are always upset about something that you've done, some decision that you've made, Mm. even though that decision might be in the best interest of the whole. So that's why I ran was to engage in public service. Uh, to Kansas City. I didn't feel that we were on the right track. And I have a basic rule that if you're going to bitch about something, then you have to get in and do something about it. Or the (laughs) other option is to shut up and stop complaining. Well, that's funny that you're talking about sort of getting involved and doing something. Harry and I are at this conference in D.C. right now. It's the New Democracy Conference, which you spoke at a couple of years ago. And one of the things someone just said on a panel is, you know, 80 percent of politics is showing up and you have no idea what an impact you can make by just, you know, showing up and trying to get involved somehow. Um, But just a lot of people would rather sit on the sidelines and criticize than try their hand at doing something different. It's a lot easier to sit on the sidelines and complain. Right. And when you were at this conference, I actually wanted to ask you, you said something. We didn't attend then, but thanks to the magic of C-SPAN, uh, we were able to look at what you had to say on panels about jobs, the economy, education, etc. And you said something in the education panel that I thought was really profound. You said politics is about winning and checking the box, but that leaves us unable or unwilling to find sustainable solutions to our chronic problems. And you added that education is a sustainable solution to our chronic problems, and that we know what to do and we don't do it. And in your book, The Opportunity Agenda, you're critical of Democrats for simply sitting back and posing themselves in opposition to Republicans as sort of antitheses rather than offering a positive agenda for voters. Can you tie these ideas together? Tell us a little bit about your philosophy for how politics should work or politics should be done. 
Well, politics by its very nature should be the art of compromise. What we've devolved into, however, is the art of conflict, where it's all about the party. Uh, it's where people are thinking very desperately about their next election. What can I do to be in office and stay in office? And how am mm-hmm. I going to raise the money and things of that nature? And when you do that, you're going to appeal to people who have narrower views than you should have when you're in a leadership position in politics. Right. When you're in politics, you have to look at the whole. You have to make tough decisions about what's in the best interest of the constituency that you serve rather than make uh, decisions based on what's going to be most efficient way of uh, winning your next election or things of that nature. We have gotten to a point where whoever has the majority will impose their will uh, because Mm -hmm. the minority will oppose it as a knee-jerk reaction. And then they will demonize the people on the other side. You can't really work with people who you have emotionally negative feelings toward on a consistent basis. So rather than everybody throwing bombs at Republicans and Democrats, where the people of the country are left in the middle and unserved, they need to refocus on the people in the middle and serving them and working in ways to find solutions to problems like education. We have in this country a very sad situation where a a lot of our children between the ages of five are left behind. Uh, They start off at the age of three, 30 million words behind their peers of a more affluent group. They reach kindergarten two years behind their kindergarten peers. They do not read proficiently at third grade, and they wind up in prison or low-wage jobs or dead-end situations. So we spend the next 75 years of that child's life trying to fix the mistakes that we made in the first five. We Mm -hmm. don't allocate enough money to it. And rather than for us to look at training our children in a way that they become productive, innovative thinkers and workers of the future, we simply let, uh, let families fend for themselves. If they have enough money, they can do things. And if they don't, that's too bad. And that hurts the entire country. So the Republicans and Democrats, if they were working together and looking long term and looking at solving problems, solving problems like crime and poverty, they would devote more time, effort and energy to education. But they can't agree on what education is, let alone what it should be. Witness the idea of uh, of burning books or banning books from library shelves. Uh, The recent law signed into a law down in Florida where you can't say the word gay uh, or talk about sexual orientation with children until at least the third grade. All of those things are are counterproductive and based on social, political uh, issues rather than what's in the best interest of the child. To that point on the polarization question and also actually, you know, to some extent about this this um, bill uh, in Florida that, that I think has, has just been signed, according to, I guess, the conventional Democratic Party framing, which I assume we all here agree with to one extent or another, is that the GOP in its current form poses some kind of threat to the future of pluralist liberal democracy. 
But despite this apparent threat and Joe Biden's pretty substantive campaign, which focused on sort of hard issues like child care, social welfare, the environment, infrastructure, um, which I guess are all things that you highlight in your book, uh, the Opportunity Agenda, we've seen limited real action from Democrats and a lot of posturing, right, about how big of a problem the GOP is. And I'm curious, you know, if you want to build on what you were saying earlier about why that's the case. Um, and are there like structural or substantive obstacles here? Or is it simply that politicians, in other words, is the system itself broken in some way? Or are the politicians, the individuals who have agency, just not willing to do the work? Well, systems are made up of people. And people right now are very polarized and divided. And therefore, the people, I think, are the problem. I think one of the problems with the Biden agenda is that they forgot to do one very important thing. And that's make sure that you are telling that story over and over and over again to the people that you're trying to serve. Mm -hmm. Most people in the country had no idea about what was in those bills. Uh, the, The president wasn't out stumping. If the president took an approach on those bills like he took during his candidacy, where he was showing up at town halls and talking about it and putting the information out there and mobilizing the Democrats to do the same, then people might say, you know what, I had no idea, but there's some good stuff in there for me. I need to support this. But that wasn't done. It was all a beltway argument about a bill uh, that had uh, the so many things in it that the Democrat uh, that the Republicans were able to uh, pick and choose and say how much this is going to cost and how damaging this is going to be to the mm. economy and things like that. The problem is that the story of what was in the bill was never told. And when you don't tell the story in your way, I guarantee you somebody is going to tell it in their way and you're not going to like it. And that's exactly where we wound up. So I think it was a failure of marketing. I think it was a failure of explanation and information provision uh, and Mm -hmm. a failure to adequately inform the American people of why this is good for you. Had more people known why it's good for them than they would mobilize. And a lot of times when you have opposition in politics, one of the things that you have to do is mobilize those people outside of politics to see it your way to the extent that you can. And then they that lessens the impact of the internal argument. And that wasn't done here. So I, I, I do think there's a failure and I do think there are dangers with politics as we see it today. What we do is we find these demagogic type leaders and we follow them even if they lead us off of a cliff, but -hmm. they're too afraid to stand up and do the right thing because they're more involved in and more concerned about their next election. When you focus on your elections, then you're going to do things that are going to help you get elected. Those are not necessarily the things that are going to solve America's problems. I actually want to make an observation there. You're pointing out about this like desire to get reelected. And there's a lot of, I think, supported by the political science literature that says all these people, elected officials, really just want to get reelected. And I think what's interesting is that for people in Congress or people who have, I guess I would say, legislative positions versus executive positions, that could be city council, state legislative, congressional, versus executives, mayors, governors, the president, right? Um, there's For the president, everything, or the executive, everything correct me if I'm wrong, having been, you know, in an executive political role yourself, everything sort of falls back to you, right? The buck stops with you. If you're a legislator, in some ways, it feels like, you know, 
the responsibility is distributed and you have maybe an easier time just sort of dodging accountability when something, for example, goes wrong. I mean, I, I just think I, I think about that sometimes and maybe that's something that's wrong with Congress. I don't know how to fix it, but it, it strikes me that for legislators, the accountability incentives are not always there in the same way that they are for executives where everything that goes right or goes wrong falls to you. No, I think you're right, uh, which is one of the reasons why I didn't run for city council as opposed to running for mayor. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I, I really, uh, it, it didn't suit my skill set. The, the difference is, however, is that it, as a leader, you're responsible for making sure that your team is informed and engaged in the process of trying to get what you want to get done, done. You also recognize that there are going to be things that you're not going to be able to get done because the team simply will not agree with it. However, if you work with the team and let them be involved in helping to shape the vision to some extent, then Mm. you can engage them in such a way that part of their vision, part of your vision becomes their own and they have no choice but to support it because then they're, if they don't, then they're not supporting their own idea. But when you're in a legislative position, it's real easy to say, well, I'm kind of in favor of it, but I know this other guy isn't or this other woman isn't. And it's their fault that it failed, not mine. Uh, But as a leader, I think your job, part of your job has to be to make sure that your team members know what the goals are that you're pushing for and that there's some agreement on the tactics and the process for achieving those goals. And then I think you sell that entire package to the American people um, and get them on board. And then you have a fairly unassailable position. But when everybody's out for their own and they're trying to appeal to their narrow constituents who may be interested in one issue only, then that becomes the problem. And I think that's the problem with American politics. We become single issues. Uh, Everybody uh, has one issue that will be a deal killer on a candidate. Candidate may be with them on 95 percent of the stuff, but they're against them on this one issue. And that means they can't vote for them. That's a really important point. And I think there you have an important lesson about leadership in politics and in policymaking. There, I think there are a bunch of those in your book, Opportunity Agenda. And I have a question here about leadership in particular that you might have some interesting thoughts on. Some say that national Democrats and Biden last summer and fall focused too much on sort of pie in the sky items. Now, you've talked a little bit about you think the messaging was off there, but Either way, I'm thinking of, you know, build back better, infrastructure, welfare, instead of they're critiqued, instead of bread and butter items like COVID, school closures, inflation, etc. And back to your education panel speech in 2018, you talked about universal preschool and you characterized things like that as potentially having transformative effects on economic performance and public safety and community health. But you also acknowledge that it's a long-term investment that's not going to show returns very quickly. And in a democratic society with frequent elections and term limits, as you experienced, and all these things from the local and the national level, how can you lead in a way that balances the urgent immediate things like public safety or transportation equity and financial opportunity and the ambitious transformative agenda uh, in your time at Kansas City, maybe uh, the streetcar or education overhauls? Is it possible, in other words, to walk and chew gum or are there some necessary trade-offs that need to be made? 
Well, if we can't walk and chew gum at the same time, then the gum manufacturers are going to be very upset. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, very few people just sit at one place and chew gum. They have to be moving. They're doing things. They're driving. They're walking to work, whatever the case may be. <laughs> the bottom line is, is that in every it, it's great to have long term goals. I believe very definitely in long term goals. However, I also believe that when you look at long term goals, you need to do two things. Number one. You need to be thinking in terms of systems. How does this goal satisfy or am ameliorate uh, problems that are, are more immediate? Mm. Number two, with even with the long-term goal, what is the short-term production going to be? What is the intermediate production going to be? And what is the long-term production going to be? For example, if we have a high-quality uh, pre-K for every child in this country, then the short-term goal is, is that we free up more women to get into the job market. More women means more workers, more mm -hmm. women means more innovation, more women means more entrepreneurship. All of those things translate into more economic activity. That's a short-term goal that can be achieved with high-quality childcare and high-quality pre-K. Okay. Because women who do not have the money to have their children taken care of or educated outside the home, stay home. We saw that very clearly during the pandemic uh, when uh, women were the ones who wound up staying home because if there were two people working and, and, and the kids were out of school one week and in school the next week or uh, totally out of school and doing virtual learning, somebody had to be home with them. And very seldom do you say, see the guy say, well, I'll right. do it, honey. You go ahead and go to work doesn't work right. like that. Uh, not across the board, anyhow. Uh, as an intermediate goal, we have higher educated kids, which means that we are having less in-school strife, less frustration. Teachers are more inclined to want to stay and teach, and children are learning and learning how to think. Um, that's a structural issue with education that we don't need to get into is what we're teaching. But the long-term goal is that the more educated our population, the less, uh, the fewer people wind up in prison. When you have options that are brought about by having an education, then you don't have to resort to the last resort, which is crime or whatever other cir uh, bad circumstances you're in. Right. All of those things are necessary, but we have to break it down. We don't just think about a vision in terms of the ultimate final result. When you're thinking about a vision, you have to think about the things that you need to accomplish along the way to achieve the ultimate vision. And sometimes we are just, you know, we're just really more focused on the glitz and the glamour rather than the grit of getting things done. Yeah, that makes I mean, that's true is I think that that is like politicians are want they want the thing that, you know, grabs the, the spotlight frequently um, and not the things that, you know, require you to well, sort of get down in the dirt. What's the first thing that a person running for office does? They, first of all, try to distinguish themselves from whoever their appoint, opponent is. Right. And one of the ways they do that is they talk bad about their opponent's record or what the opponent has done. Seldom do you hear a person running for office say, you know what, I'm running against Joe. But when Joe passed that health care bill, Joe did a very good thing. And I'm very proud of him for doing that. And I thank him for doing that. However, I do something different. What we do is we go after the negative, we try and villainize the opponent all too often, and then we set up our own goals. And so then if, you elect, if you're elected, the first thing that you do is you turn the bureaucracy that you can and that's uh, 
under your control in the direction of where you want to go. So even if there was something good that happened in the previous administration, all of a sudden that's abandoned and left on the side of the street. Yeah. And you're off taking off on your goals so that you can achieve short term goals so that you can go back out on your next election and say, see what I did? Well, yeah, you might have done something good, but the problem is that the chronic problems that were being addressed are no longer addressed because you shifted the focus from that to where you wanted to go for your own political purposes. That's one of the major problems that I see. Well, I think you're right. And I think a lot of people, people interested in politics, politicians might respond to that criticism and say, well, you know, Mr. James, it works. I do that and it wins elections. What else am I supposed to do? I mean, I'm supposed to win, right? Um, in your experience, no, do you think you're that- You're supposed to win. You're supposed to serve. That's well, there the you go. Right. I mean, there you go. But but to serve, I mean, on the one hand, someone might still argue to serve, you first have to win that election, then to do something for those people. Do you think that your career is a testimony to the fact that you can do things differently? Do you feel like you did things differently in terms of how you treat your opponents and things like that and how you deal with the bureaucracy? Absolutely. Uh, first of all, in our election, I ran against a, a Mike Burke and I don't know, seven or eight other people at one point, but Mike and I were the ones that were in the, the uh, final election. Mike and I never had a crossword. We never distributed any negative literature. I told Mike and he told me that whoever was elected, we would rely on the others to come help when it was needed. So when I was elected, I appointed Mike to chair our, our uh, uh, cross-state panel uh, to implement Google. He was the chair on that. I also appointed him to chair the arts um, uh, commission to find out how we could better utilize and monetize and spread the arts throughout the city. Because there's no reason to take a person who has talent and desire to serve and say, well, yeah. you lost, so go away. What we want is to instill the desire to serve in more people, not drive it out of as many as we can. So you don't have to, you don't have to be mean or vindictive or resentful towards somebody you're running against. You simply have to, A, treat them right, stand on your ideas as the basis for running, as opposed to standing on the flaws of the person that you're running against, and tell the damn truth. I believe that if you tell the truth to people, even if they don't like what you're saying, they will respect you because they can trust you to tell them the truth. There's a lot of times when we disagree with somebody, but we still respect them. The problem is, is that when you go to one group and you say one thing, you go to another group and you say the exact opposite, eventually those two groups are going to meet on a subject and they're going to say, well, that's what the opposite of what he told me. And therefore you become untrustworthy and everything that you do or say after that becomes suspect with mm. those folks. So you don't have to villainize your opponent. In fact, it is harmful to do so. We need better people in politics. And what we're doing is we're driving people who have a good heart, a good soul, a good mind, a good ideas out of the area because nobody wants to be put through a meat grinder in order to take a job that probably pays yeah. less than what they're earning already. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I want to pivot very quickly here to get into um, a, a little bit more of the nuts and bolts of local government, which I think is something that people just don't pay enough um, attention to generally or how democracy works at the local level. Sometimes right. it's, it strikes me that there are 
kind of structural obstacles to getting really big things done at the local level, um, solving those chronic problems, big constraints on, say, like revenue raising um, uh, versus the federal and state governments, for example. And, and I'm curious what you think about that. How can local governments really intervene in people's lives and help them in important ways? How do you get around this issue that, the, for example, right? I mean, local taxes are always much lower than state or federal taxes. And what are the tools that are available to really get things done at the local level? One of the biggest impediments to local government is state government. Uh, state government and the people who are in state government have a very inflated sense of ego <laughs> and believe that they should be able to control everything throughout the state. And therefore, they squash innovation. Local governments have to innovate. And the reason they have to innovate is the cost of providing goods and services goes up, the revenue stays the same. So in order for you to improve your service delivery systems, you have to find more innovative ways to do that. We were able to do that by setting up KC Stat, which is exceptionally data-driven, relies on citizen satisfaction surveys, 311 calls, and data from all sorts of sources that's analyzed. And it tells us these are the things that are most important to the public. This is where we need to pivot. This is where we need to reallocate funds or redistribute uh, resources in some way in order to give them something that they can see is working for their benefit. When you do that, then the next time you come out and say, hey, we need to do this, now you've got cachet. You've got some degree of credibility because you've delivered on some other things. Local government is the best form of government, in my opinion, <laughs> for one reason. In most instances, local government is nonpartisan. So you don't have political squabbles between mm -hmm. Republicans and Democrats. What you do, you may have a squabble over what to do and how to do it, but those are easily solved if you can get past philosophically, politically driven uh, positions that are taken. Mm -hmm. I'm going to oppose this because my party does. Well, your party's an idiot. Uh, <laughs> what you should be doing is trying to say, what are we doing to help the citizens of this city? The other problem with local government is, is that all the problems that are created at the federal and the state level roll downhill and end up in local government because the state and the federal government does nothing really, to, uh, not enough, I should say, to help with mental health or to help with health. Local government has all those people who need mental health services and health services in their cities and towns. And we have to find a solution. Mm -hmm. Thus, we have a health care levy that we pass in order to provide a health safety net. But it's not enough. We do not have the revenue to take care of this on a broad basis. So we put Band-Aids on bleeders and we expect things to get better and it doesn't. But we are making them better for as many people as we can, as we can, uh, kind of like the whole starfish issue of, um, you know, I can't save them all, but I can at least save this one. So mm -hmm. local government functions. It's the closest contact people have to government. It is often misunderstood by people who don't really immerse themselves in it uh, and don't vote enough, don't keep up on the issues, but it's absolutely vital. You want to see a bunch of people get mad? Let the snow pile up on their street or their trash not be picked up for a couple of weeks. They get crazy. Yeah. If you really want to see people get mad, let a dog be abused. We have more phone calls from people mad about animal issues than we did about kids getting shot in the head. It's absolutely crazy. Mm. But at the end of the day, we are charged with solving the problems that should be addressed on a higher level with more resources, but aren't. Well, I think you've also encapsulated something 
there that I noticed in reading your writing from which you, I, you co-wrote the Opportunity Agenda, but your book, you expressed this repeated attitude that there, in crises, there is first and foremost opportunity. And I think what you've expressed there with local governments is there is there are constraints, but ultimately necessity is the mother of invention. And when you've got to perform and you don't have lots of resources, you can come up with more ingenious solutions with less bloat and waste than you would find at other levels that, you know, don't have to pinch their pennies so closely. But you also talk about opposition and local government and how it's not exactly partisan. But in an exit interview from the mayor's office back in 2019, you said that one of the biggest challenges, and you mentioned this uh, briefly, not by the same name um, in your first statement earlier in this episode, but you said that one of the biggest challenges in local politics are what you called CAVEs, which are citizens against virtually everything. Very loud people who oppose any kind of change. So right. I've, I have two questions about that. First, do you think that most people are this way or is it really a minority and most people don't mind or even want change? And second, how do you overcome this kind of an obstacle and really show a way forward that most people can get behind despite loud voices against it? Well, first of all, cave people are the minority, but a lot of people think they're majority because they're loud. Uh, loud does not equal numbers, just means loud. Most people who are not cave people simply don't say anything. You know, they're quiet. That's the mm -hmm. whole reason behind the silent majority. They don't say what what they're thinking a lot of times. Cave people will come out and force against anything that they don't like for any reason. At the end of the day, no, I do. I think they're a part of the population, but I think they're a smaller part of the population uh, than people I give them credit for. And you overcome it. And I think that the proof is in the pudding. We were able to get a lot of very innovative things done in Kansas City, things that are lasting, things that had long-term, short-term, mm -hmm. and intermediate results and impacts, because the majority of the people felt that that was something that could and should be done. For example, when we passed our $800 million uh, infrastructure bond for basic infrastructure, it took three separate property tax increases and in votes in order to get that done. Each of those property tax increases had to be above 57%. We didn't have any that were below 61. And the reason for that is we went out and we talked to people about it. We also used our citizen satisfaction survey where people were constantly complaining about infrastructure. So basically when we were out on the stump, we said, hey, look, you said this is a major problem for you. Here's a solution for it. And you have two choices. You can help us implement this solution or you can stop complaining about it one way or the other. <laughs> if we really want to be smart, we're going to make an investment in fixing our infrastructure, which is something that you've rated very high, consistently high in our citizen satisfaction surveys. Here's what it's going to take. It ain't going to be cheap and it ain't going to be free. But if you are serious about wanting improvements here, this is what the cost is going to be. Here's how we're going to do it. What are your questions? And then we sat there for hours and answered questions and argued with people and made a few adjustments based on things that we heard. And when we say, hear something that somebody says, well, what about this? And it's a good idea. We say, you know what? That's a damn good idea. We need to think about how they implement that or whether, what impact that could have. So you let people participate, but you also have to hold them to their own words, accountability. If you want to complain about something 
and then somebody says, okay, I'm going to fix it. Don't tell me that you don't want it fixed because it's going to cost <laughs> you some money because there yeah. ain't nothing free in this country and we should all know that by now. Yeah, and I think I have one other question about how to lead at the local level because you t- you talk a lot about service and uh, the citizen satisfaction service and just solving the problems that people identify. I mean, in some ways you seem to say it really is uh, that simple that you ask people what the problem is, they tell you, and you solve it. And they're going to like you and they're going to appreciate it ultimately. Most people are, despite the few that, you know, uh, are just going to be opposed all the time to everything. But as a for, sort of flip side to that, it seems to me that there's sort of two styles of leadership maybe. And maybe you'll disagree that these, are, these aren't separate. But uh, there seems to be an attitude of sort of showing up and just keeping your head down and solving the problems that need to get solved. But there's also another of really sort of ambitiously striving to build a city, if we're talking about city leadership, into something new better and more attractive than it was before. As a sort of personal aside, everyone I knew at Kenyon, and Harry can attest to this, knew me at least partially as the guy who wore Kansas City t-shirts and sweatshirts. Not any any sports team, just my city. And this was really strange to a lot of people. It's, It's a phenomenon that more people have become aware of, especially since Ted Lasso came out. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, Oh, yeah. (laughs) But in your time as mayor, it seems like there was a real explosion of city pride with the growth of brands like Charlie Hustle, etc. I know you'll know what I'm talking about. Some listeners might not. But for a long time, my dad, who grew up in Kansas City also, complained that people never seemed to give the city much respect, both within the city and around the country. That seems to be changing, though. So I'm curious what you see as the connection between local pride and national awareness. And is there a virtue of putting your city on the map nationally rather than just solving problems at home? Well, absolutely. And and let me tell you a little story about the logo issue. Please. Um, and, and also, I understand your uniform uh, because that's really <laughs> what it is. Every time you were wearing your uniform, that's how people recognized you. It's kind of like me. Uh, when I would go to the grocery store without a bow tie, people would walk up and say, you look familiar. You look familiar. <laughs> and I, and finally they f- figure out who I was and they say, well, I didn't recognize you without the bow tie. Well, they wouldn't have recognized you without your t-shirt and cap. Okay. Now the whole, we did something that raised some hackles. I've been to enough out of city conferences and seen uh, people and they'd see the fountain logo on some of the stuff. And they say, what is that? And I'd say, well, it's a fountain. Well, why? Okay. It, it wasn't immediately recognizable or connected to Kansas City, although Kansas City's, Kansas Cityans understand the city of fountains issue. So when I came back from one, I said, you know what? We need a mark. It doesn't need to be the logo. The logo can stay the same, but we need a mark. So we actually had a contest for a mark. And they came up with the very simple KC in various forms. And all of a sudden, KC became prolific and everybody started wearing it. That shows pride. Mm -hmm. When you have that kind of pride in your city, what do you want to do? You want to do more. If you've got a car that you just bought, you're really proud of it and love it, you're going to drive that sucker all over town. You're going to get out at the restaurant. You're going to stand there for an extra long time when you get out so the people recognize, that's my car. Same thing (laughs) with cities. When you have the city that has a national profile, you attract national issues and attention. National attention means more money, 
more events, more people coming in to visit, more destruction of the old stereotypes of what the city was like. When, when we saw people coming in for the All-Star Game, for example, um, and people were coming from all over the world and they come to Kansas City and, and the most favorite expression I heard was, I had no idea. And by that, they were saying, I had no idea that Kansas City was this cool. Right. Well, when you get here, you know. But they wouldn't have gotten here if it hadn't have been for us raising our national profile, doing things downtown in order to build up things that look good, having the Kauffman Center for Performing Arts show up on football games, um, having the Royals win the World Series, having Mahomes, all of those things add to the yeah. national pride because the words Kansas City were in a lot of people's mouths. And all of a sudden, the city that had gotten no pub was getting tons of it. And now people know who we are. We had investors from New York come in and say, this is the new Mecca. This is where we're going to start spending money. When we built light rail downtown, we had people from Denver come in and walk the entire uh, route of uh, the streetcar looking for spots where they could build a hotel, uh, apartments and other things. And they did it. The streetcar brought in over $2 billion worth of investment, uh, not all on its own, wow. but it created a synergy there that led to it. It allowed people to circulate through downtown. So we had more foot traffic and that meant more merchants were selling whatever it was they sold, whether it was food or maps or whatever the case may be. Local pride leads often to national recognition, because when you're proud of what you're doing, you're going to show it off. And if you don't show it off, then people, nobody knows who you are or what you stand for. All of a sudden, people started noticing Kansas City and realizing what we stood for. My style of leadership was very simple. Be there. Not in my office. Out. Be out all the time. Answer questions. Don't be afraid. Deal with whatever you had to deal with, but be out there and be accessible so that people knew who you were. They could talk to you. They could express their feelings. They could tell you what they loved, what they didn't like. If they like you or if they didn't like you, you had to be there. And if you can't do anything as a as a mayor in a city of this type other than be present and promote your city, then that's good. But the other things are gravy on top of it. And you don't need to know everything about economic development, but there's no excuse for not being public, visible and accessible to your to the people that you're serving. Well, I can definitely speak to that. I'm, I'm not from Kansas City, but I've been there a couple times now, and I, I rode the streetcar. Um, I really enjoyed it. We went to the World War One Museum. We saw um, the station. It was a, it was a blast. So um, in, in a very real sense, you've put um, a guy like me from the coast um, very much, um, well, you and Philip together uh, have, put, have put Kansas City on the map for me. So, um, and, I, and I really have enjoyed the time that I've spent there. So kudos, kudos there. Um, I think that just about wraps up where we are for today. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. A lot of, a lot of valuable lessons, just leadership, local politics, but local service there. So we really appreciate you sharing those thoughts with us, Mr. James. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. No, no worries. One last thought, if I may. Please. I think the best leaders and the ones who might, in fact, have the longest longevity in leadership positions are the ones who don't care if they get reelected the next time. Yeah. People respect you if they think that you are working in their best interest, even if it costs you something. I think the American public is craving authenticity and honesty. And when they see somebody who is authentic and honest, then they will support that person. And if they don't, 
no harm done to you. You just move on because other people will want you, even if the public doesn't. Yeah, it's a difficult sort of uh, tricky question there or, or how to navigate that. The fact that those who don't seek re-election may be the most reliable servants um, when we live in a system that really just incentivizes because you talk about thinking systemically and thinking in terms of systems. It's tough in a democracy to find people like that who are willing to do those jobs um, and who are able to compete with the other people who are maybe a little less uh, public uh, spirited in a way. Exactly. Thank you all for what you're doing, and I wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much. That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and share this episode with your friends or on social media. If you'd like to listen to each new article of Focus and Insight read aloud, follow the link in the notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to make a comment on the episode that you just heard, there's a link to our website, also in the notes, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter, if you haven't already, to receive a new way of seeing politics in your inbox five days a week. And find us on Twitter, at Spectacles Media. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks.